Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm recording. Thank you, Henry. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give, a, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word he tells us stands forever. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. May we hear your words of truth. Jesus, may your sermon be heard louder than my sermon this morning and each Sunday morning. For your words are eternal and perfect. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. To preach on passages like this is no small task. Before we get into the subject of the, of the sermon itself, the subject, this, uh, this point of of lust, of adultery, of divorce, of marriage. I want us to focus in on the bigger picture of this sermon, and then we'll zero in on those topics, but then the topics in the passage itself is going to bring us back to the main focus of the sermon. Jesus is with his disciples in a bigger group of people than just his 12 disciples, a much bigger group has gathered, as is often the case, and they've come to him because his teaching, it tells us at the end of his sermon, his teaching is different than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests. His teaching is with authority. Jesus is peeling back the layers of additional rules and legalism that's been added to God's Word. But he's also recentering people on the perfection of God's Word, on the usefulness of it, to not write it off or diminish it, either out of convenience or out of desire. Jesus is giving people a renewed love for God's Word. And that, I would suggest, 
is the heart of the matter even in this passage is that the people would have a renewed love for the things that we are called to love. For the things that are good to love. In particular, the one that his listeners to are, listeners are married to. In particular, God who calls us <coughs> his spouse and describes even in the Old Testament, it's not new, even in the Old Testament in Isaiah 61, as his church, his people, his followers being those who are wearing a beautiful bridal headdress. The bride who's been made beautiful by God Himself. Jesus with His disciples is working on the, the, the difficult task of making disciples, of discipleship, of teaching people again how to follow God when they've gone astray, gone away. And that, that is the heart of the matter when Jesus comes to these many people see as the core of the Sermon on the Mount when he ex- expands on the idea of what it means to not murder or not commit adultery. To not bear false witness. To love your neighbor and even extend that love to our enemies. Jesus is renewing the call to discipleship. And that's why I've wanted to come and preach on the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons outside here is that he would be renewed in our call to discipleship. Because discipleship always comes and challenges us. It pushes us in areas we're not comfortable with. If there's one thing that can be said for the current generation is that we are not comfortable being challenged, pushed, especially in areas of ethics that we don't agree with. Most of us, many of us like to be challenged in certain aspects, physically or even intellectually, but few of us like to be challenged in areas of ethics that cause us to reconsider, that maybe even cause us to change our behavior in our life. And that's what Jesus is concerned with most when he comes to this section on lust. In most of your Bibles, it's titled Lust and Divorce. And he, is that he's challenging us to reconsider not just sexual ethics, but many places in ethics that we've written off or diminished or even at an extreme level that many of us get to we've cast or tried to push God aside from our lives because His ethics don't align with ours and they're inconvenient. There's, of course, no way to push God out of our lives. And yet God, as a loving parent, often has to do as well. Does allow us our own courses to choose the bad path for a season. 
so that we would know that His love is not ultimately coerced or coercive. It's not forced. It's rather a love that can't be resisted. Irresistible grace is the term theologians use. His love and His call is irresistible and that, that is at the heart of this message. Now, why do I say that? What's the heart of the, uh, the message here about lust? It is easy to come to this passage and have all kinds of preconceived notions. And I don't want to diminish any of those. Many people come to this. In fact, I read a number of sermons on this passage and preach on marriage or preach on even sexual relationships within marriage and sex in general. Address the topic of lust. And those are good and useful sermons. If you want to hear a sermon like that, you can go back and listen when I preached through uh, Proverbs. We had a, a pretty detailed sermon on sex and marriage. Many people further want to take this as a warning purely against lust and expound on the dangers of that, the slippery slope and how it leads to all kinds of other sins, including sex outside of marriage, of course, and uh, various forms of abuse of this gift. And we'll touch on that a little bit today as well. And let me, before we begin, even affirm these points about marriage and sex. First, that marriage is designed and given by God. The very beginning of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we find God making humanity and giving the husband a wife and blessing that institution and designing and describing that marriage is between one man and one woman. Marriage is a bond. The marriage bond is from God. And it's intended to last until one person dies in the marriage. And this, this I would suggest is actually at the heart of this message. In marriage, the two become one flesh. Again, spoken in Genesis and repeated by our Lord Jesus later when he's talking about Matthew, or talking about marriage and sex later in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded. One flesh refers both to the physical union of sex and it also refers to the purpose, the calling, the united pursuit of God and pursuit of mission in life. And lastly, sex outside of marriage is forbidden. It's an abuse of this gift, either before marriage or outside of marriage. Yet, in no way, in no way is this sin presented as the unforgivable sin. Or the one that won't be allowed into churches. This is often, especially in recent generations, and even through much of church history, sadly been the case. Too many caricatures have been built upon that. And sexual sin is not unforgivable, but sexual sin is dangerous. 
Sex can be compared to a, a gun, a firearm. It can be used for useful things, but it is also very dangerous when misused or abused. Jesus calls it out, listing it right after murder in his list. And I want to suggest to you that this was not something that was foreign to the listeners that Jesus would have come to. Jesus came to them and he said, you have heard it was said you shall not murder. All the people would have said, yes, of course, we have heard that. And all but the hardest of hearts would have agreed with that. In a similar way, even in the same way, Jesus speaking to his audience who needed to be formed and shaped into discipleship would have heard these words, you shall not commit adultery. And by and large, they would have agreed with that. For adultery, by definition, is sex with somebody you are not married to, either when they are married or when you are married. It's sex that is breaking the marriage bond. It's different if you get into technical theological terms or even just English language terms. It's different than fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, or sex when you're not married. I choose not to generally use that term because it's misunderstood and I tend to speak of extramarital sex outside of marriage. But technically, those things are delineated and Jesus uses the technical word. He's talking about adultery and that is sex that breaks the marriage bond. Almost everyone you will meet, even in today's society, will agree with this point that if you are married to somebody else, There is a call, a need to be faithful to that person. Many people even extend this to the 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 uh, um, relationships. If if they're dating and having sex in a dating relationship, there is still a general acknowledgement that there needs to be a fidelity, a faithfulness in those relationships. Like in Jesus' time, when they heard this, they would have said, Yes, we agree with you. We shall not commit adultery. I think also, this is one of the most important apologetic points of this time. The most important things that we can communicate about God to those who don't believe is the notion of God's faithfulness to His people and His desire for our faithfulness to Him and the related warning about what happens when we're unfaithful to that relationship with Him. And the type of relationships we get into not just with other people, but with other ideas and philosophies when we're unfaithful to God and His love to us. For these philosophies, the world's philosophies, they have an appearance of wisdom. Oftentimes, Skewed versions of religion even have an appearance of religion of, of wisdom. They work for a time. But as we go on and on, 
We find the cracks in the system. We find that that lover that seemed so attractive at the time and like all the answer to all of our problems isn't meeting our needs as much as we thought he or she would. The call of God in that time is to come back to him. Return to me, God says. Return to me and I will heal you and forgive you. It's a powerful testimony that God offers forgiveness, not just one time. In fact, in this whole section, Matthew 18 is a great chapter to go read, and it's it's filled with these interestingly connected, seemingly unconnected, yet connected uh, passages and teachings that Jesus has. And one of those teachings is one of the disciples asking Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he says, seven? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. In other words, infinitely continue to forgive others as an example of how God forgives us particularly when we fail in these areas in the areas that seem most significant and let me tell you what's most difficult to forgive by people which Sexual sins, especially that break the marriage bond, are the most difficult of sins to forgive. God can forgive faithfully. And it's interesting that that testimony, that call of this passage and of of this whole topic, particularly this passage I want to get into, is a call for those who have been sinned against in this way to extend a forgiveness to those who have who have sinned against them. Now, why do I say that? Let's look at this passage a little bit and unpack it. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This passage is interestingly translated, and the term lust, even that titles it, is perhaps not the best term to summarize the passage or even to translate. It's an accurate term. The planes are untimely here today. Let's see what. Hold on. It's an accurate term in this context, but let me give you an alternative translation. I think it's more specific, if not more difficult. And that is if anyone gazes, gazes at a woman and sets his heart upon her. Sets his heart. The word 
that's translated lustful intent here is that he sets his heart upon something. Some places it's actually translated, many places actually translated as coveting. We can covet many things, not just another person. Not just with sexual desire, we can covet all kinds of things. And it's very accurate. Sometimes it's translated, set your heart on. It's more than just a passing fancy that he's speaking about. He's saying, if you set your heart on something that is not yours. It's used oftentimes to describe even stealing or coveting in the idea of stealing something or wanting something that is not yours. If you set your heart on something that is not yours, it will lead you to all kinds of other sins. And it is a sin in and of itself. You have already committed adultery when you covet these things. Now, I want you to see two things here. One is that it expands out. If lust is not something that you deal with personally, sexual lust, I want you to also consider that this may apply to you in terms of wanting just a different marriage, a different spouse who meets certain needs that your spouse doesn't, isn't meeting right now. I want you to consider, maybe if you're not married even, what are the things that you are unsatisfied with in life? The things that you are wanting God to give you and thinking, God doesn't love me if he doesn't give me this. One of the cultural differences between us and and Jesus' time is that in his time, even though Jesus is not married, most of the people in that culture got married fairly young. And so most of the people in his audience would have been married. And so most of the people in his audience, as is the case in every single marriage, would have experienced some of the joys and highlights of that marriage and would have also experienced some of the difficulties and struggles of that marriage, the disappointments, the ways that we expect our our spouse to meet all of our needs and oftentimes expect our spouse to be Jesus to us. They have come up to the point where they realize that their spouse is not Jesus, nor are any of these other things, nor are they God who has promised to be the faithful one to us. And one of the pressing questions in this passage is what do you do when you face that disappointment? What do you do when you face that disappointment? Do you look elsewhere to have your needs met? Now I'm not talking about some needs, some needs we need to look elsewhere. Oftentimes we look for our spouse to be our, our true companion, our, our intimate partner, our, our best friend, our business partner, our best friend. We, we look for our spouse to be everything we need to just have another friend. We need to have some outlets that are getting away from our spouse for a time so that we don't expect so much from our spouse. 
One of the great questions that I've been able to ask in premarital counseling recently is how much are you willing to change and how much are you expecting your spouse to change? And then flip that question around. How much are you expecting, are you expecting your, wanting your, going to allow, how much do you think your spouse will expect you to change? And how much do you think you should expect them to be willing to change? I know many people here are not married, and so maybe this will apply if at some point you are married. Some of these points even apply to to just relationships with other people and what we expect of other people and what we're willing to do and change. I found in most marriage problems, the problem exists in a high expectation for the other to change, but not a willingness for themselves to change. Back to the passage. The coveting of somebody else is actually a setting your heart on something. I described it not as a simply a passing fancy, but a wanting of something else, thinking it will satisfy our needs. Jesus goes on to provide something of an added antidote, it seems. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. He goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now here, people have gone off into all kinds of speculation on what this means. I can remember from my college days, being on the beach with a bunch from Campus Crusade and they had a strategy for avoiding lust and it was to look at the clouds and look at the sand. All kinds of other things have been proposed and you wonder, is that what Jesus is saying here? Cut out your right eye. And anyone who's paying attention might think, but you still have your left eye. And even if you lose both eyes, you still have your memory. This is a foolhardy plan to think that you can simply avoid any temptation by cutting out your eye. And as if to say, don't go there, Jesus goes on to explain, cut off your right hand, which has nothing to do with the eye. And it begs the question, what's he getting at? Why does he give these grotesque examples? And one thing, one reason is that the the ancient Jewish explanations of God's word We've talked about those before, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the explanation and adding on of different laws and penalties actually gave as some of the penalties cutting off a hand for certain things. Jesus is certainly playing on that familiarity. But what Jesus is doing more specifically here 
is he's saying there are two very important parts of your body. Your right hand is the thing that you probably do more with than any other part of your body, if you're right-handed, which most of us are. Your right eye, for many people, is your dominant eye, and so you, the eye is one of the most important things that we have as, as people, the most important members. He's contrasting that with the heart, which he mentions twice. Don't set your heart on something. If we take that uh, lustful intent and understand it in the, the, the way that it was very literally translated, don't set your heart on it. And then he says, and then he says later, uh, he's already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. He goes on multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount to discuss the heart. And he's very concerned with the condition of the people's heart. You can summarize the purpose, the main point of the, the, the Sermon on the Mount as what rewards and motives drive the heart. What rewards and motives drive the a person's heart. And for many during the time when Jesus is preaching, the motives were very much fear-based. If I don't do this, I will be cast out of the covenant community. And Jesus over and over, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, says, no, you've You've missed something here if you don't understand that the motives, the motives are how you care for and love other people. That's why the golden rule is part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says later in, uh, I wasn't planning to read it, but I will. Chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are what God has, Jesus has just said, I've not come to abolish anything from the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to explain them more deeply to you. And so what the hand and the eye gouged out, the right hand, the right eye gouged out compared to the heart is saying is that have perspective on the things in your life and where they are leading, what's driving you, what's motivating you, and what you are desiring, what rewards you are seeking. And if there is something in your life, if there's something in your life that is directing and leading your heart away from God himself, whether it's a person, a career, a dream, an aspiration, some other relationship, some other idol, some other practice, some habit that you've gotten into, if there are those things in your life that are, that are leading you away from God, what is probably necessary 
is a painful amputation of that thing. A cutting off of that thing because it will direct your heart away from God and His promises and His relationship and His good things. And that's exactly what the description of this Gehenna, the hell of fire that we read about a couple weeks ago, it was the description of this burning trash pile outside of the city. It wasn't some underground cavern that most of us have a picture of from some cartoon or some movie or some book even. It was the burning trash pile outside of the city. It was this continuously burning. It was those people who said, I don't want to I don't want to live in the city and follow the rules of the city because I believe life is better outside of the city. And what Jesus is trying to describe is that that life outside of the city of God is a life of refuse, of continued torment, of pain and suffering. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there at lust. He goes on to talk about divorce. And it's interesting, even the, 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 the grammar here The grammar here is different. You notice you've heard it was said to those of old. You have heard that it was said, and then he changes this. It was also said, and then he goes back. You've heard that it was said to those of old. In other words, these two two teachings are tied together on lust and divorce. And there's something of the opposite side of the coin. He says, some of you have come up with a good scheme, it seems like to you. As Moses said, if my heart is set on another woman, I can just write my wife a certificate of divorce. It's right there in the law. I'm following the law. And so this is a twist on what was going on in the first case. The first case was somebody staying in the relationship, putting on a pretense pretending to be faithful when really their heart is set on something else or someone else. But now we've got the person who wants to take it a step further and say, I can just write my wife a certificate of divorce and I can pursue somebody else. It's legal. It's right there. But Jesus says, no, that wasn't how it was designed. It wasn't how it was from the beginning. Again, you can look ahead to Matthew 18 and see Jesus explain this a little bit more. He says, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now, isn't that an interesting twist? Uh, On one hand, I skipped over one passage. We'll come back to it, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Isn't that an interesting twist? Makes her commit adultery. He's not saying commits adultery himself. He's already said you're committing adultery when you set your heart on this other woman. You've already gone there. But now you've taken this a step further and you've caused somebody else to sin. And again, Jesus started his sermon by saying, if anyone relaxes, releases any of these laws that I've given to you and causes others to do the same, may you be cast out into that Gehenna, into that 
you are guilty of an even greater sin when you cause other people to sin. And you're not the only one entering into sin here. You are actually, in pursuing this divorce, causing somebody else to sin, the person you are married to. And he goes on to roll that out and say, of course this woman is going to marry again. For in that culture, in that time, not necessarily by God's decree or by his word or by his commandments, but in that culture and in that time, women were very dependent on men. And so those who weren't married, in the New Testament we find the widows in particular, the widows were at all kinds of risks and so one of the key things the church was called to do was to make sure the needs of the widows were being met and so and so jesus explains that anyone who then goes on and and marries this woman is is also committing adultery not because he's not doing something good for her in fact that is something that was good for her most of the time, assuming it was a, a good husband. But he's pointing the finger back to that person who has set his heart on something else, who's sending the wife away, who's writing her the certificate of divorce. And he's saying, this is not how God designed it to be. Going back to what I said about marriage at the beginning, God gave marriage as a bond that would last through this life. It's not an eternal bond. And we're pro- I'm sure we, we, we have a reason to, to believe that we will have relationship with our, our spouse, our, our, our loved ones in eternity. But Jesus is careful to say we're not going to be married in the same way we are today to that same person. But God has designed marriage in this life to last until death do us part. It's one of those weird lines in the old wedding ceremonies. You, you, I, I will love you until you die. Anybody ever think that's kind of cringeworthy? I'll love you until you die, but it's a faithful promise. It's an accurate, very precise promise. Because either I will love you until I die, but I'm promising to love you until you die. At which time... A husband or wife is then freed to marry somebody else. Marriage is meant to last a lifetime. And when we diminish marriage, when we diminish the covenant bond that God has designed it to be, when we think, oh, I made a mistake in marrying this person, except on certain grounds, and we'll talk about that briefly. I made a mistake in marrying this person. We're saying to God, no, you made the mistake, God, because you've given not only marriage, but you have united this marriage most often in the context of a church if we are Christians marrying one another. The Apostle Paul even goes so far as to say, if you find yourself a believer who's married to an unbeliever, 
stay in the marriage as long as your spouse is willing to stay in the marriage. Perhaps that person will come to believe through your faith. You might think, based on what I've just said, that that would be that would be wrong. That would be a poor application because that spouse, the one we're united to in marriage, is going to have a powerful impact in our lives, potentially pulling us away from God. That's why God warns us multiple times in the scriptures, don't marry an unbeliever. Because in that yoked relationship, we will be pulled in different directions. And yet, so shocking it's really shocking when you consider those, that commandment coupled uh, to, to not marry an unbeliever. And yet Paul says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay, what God is saying is that this marriage bond, it is bigger than what is just in this world, what you can see. It is a bond that has been established by God himself in the heavens. Not that it lasts forever, but that has been instituted by God and God is the one who is at work in your life and in your marriage. And it may seem like the right ideas to escape out of it, but God has called us into it. And if you're in a difficult marriage right now and if you're having trouble, Go back to that question I asked. Are you willing to change and are you expecting the other to change? It's usually at the heart of the matter. Are you willing to change? One person being willing to change, but not the other. Or, most likely, one person wasn't willing to change and now both people are not willing to change. time to draw this to a close but I want to draw I want to point one thing out and that is when Jesus gives the exception except on the ground of sexual immorality you need to ask the question is this an is this a, a comprehensive list is this the only reason that somebody can get a divorce and the answer is clearly no the Apostle Paul gives also the ground of somebody who's not willing to stay married to you. In other words, desertion of a spouse of another is a clear uh, thing. And, and you can also make a compelling case biblically that, uh, that certainly physical abuse and certain forms of emotional abuse are also uh, reason to, uh, to at least uh, take, take a separation from marriage for a time. But this sermon is not about that. I just want to say, why does Jesus only list this thing out? There's, mentioned sexual immorality and that's because the whole passage started with the concept of lust and adultery and so what Jesus is saying is unless your spouse is the one who did this first unless your spouse is the one who did this first stay in the marriage unless your spouse is the one who committed the adultery first that gives you some grounds but but otherwise pursue this marriage and understand that God has given it to you to stay into it. Shanti Feld, Feldman uh, wrote a great book on, on marriage. I don't have the title with me right now, but she did some, she's done some research on it. One of the most profound things I, I heard 
as she had researched, was that most people, especially when you're young in marriage and thinking about getting out of a marriage because it's not satisfying, most people, if they will do the difficult work of sticking it out for a few months even, sometimes a few years, will find that life is better. Life is better having worked it out and stayed with that first marriage than the level of satisfaction you find in people in second and third marriages. In fact, not just most, I don't have the exact figure, but it's, it's a vast majority of people who are willing to stick it out and continue with it. And that is what Jesus' point is to, is to stay with our first love. To stay with our first love and not to set our heart, not to lust after other things, other, other people, other women, other men, other relationships, other whatever it is. And I mentioned earlier how powerful of an apologetic, that is an explanation, a reason to believe in God, an explanation for how to believe, why to believe in God. And that, that is so, such a powerful illustration of how Jesus is faithful and continues to pursue us as his church when we are continually unfaithful to him. The book of Hosea is all about this. The prophecy of Hosea about a, a wayward wife who is going away and a husband who continues to pursue that wife. It's not to pick on wives. In fact, this passage, if anything, has, has laid the blame more, much more on men than on the women. And it's, that is, uh, it's, it's a pretty equal, uh, pretty equal blame game if you want to get into that whole thing. But in the book of Hosea, it's this picture of a husband who continues to pursue the wife. And it is a clear picture. It is meant to explain how God pursues us as his beloved. How he makes us beautiful. How he renews and not just forgives us, but push, puts all that sin off of us. Who restores, who restores everything we feel like we've lost by our bad decisions. Who gives us reason to continue to press into the difficulty of the relationship and relationships that we're in. Of Jesus himself who comes and sacrifices and gives himself for his spouse, laying down his life, like Paul describes in Ephesians 5, and applying that even further. One of the most disturbing things I read in preparing for this was a sermon on marriage where, where it was described that the, uh, the, the, the um, wives submit to your husbands means that, that wives should put their husbands' interests in front of their own. When Jesus himself in Philippians 2, we see, considered the needs of others, considered the needs of his church more important than his own, the interests of others before their own. Husbands, consider the interests of your wife more important than your own. Jesus has done that for you. That is the form of servant leadership we are called to as husbands. Wives, are called to submit to their husbands who are leading in that type of way. Just as we as the church are called to submit to Christ, not that the husband has to say in everything, 
but that the husband bears a responsibility for the family, support that, that role and that responsibility. Be renewed in your sense of faithfulness. Be renewed in the call, your call to faithfulness in your marriage, husbands and wives, your call to faithfulness in relationships inside marriage, outside marriage, your call to faithfulness in relationships in all places because Jesus has done this for you, has been faithful to you. And he has renewed renewed our love for his law that sets us on a whole different trajectory that we would pursue this righteousness so that we would be better lovers in its literal sense to our spouse but in its figurative sense to all those that we're in relationship and particularly to God That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the ways that you have pursued us and called us to be yours. For the ways that you are faithful to us and for the gift of marriage that you have given to many of us. For the gift of singleness that you have equipped many with as well for the example that Jesus and the Apostle Paul gave for that and many others throughout history. Father, we thank you that sex is not the answer to all of our problems, and yet you have given it in its proper context as a beautiful thing. Will you help us that we would not abuse it in the so many forms that we are called to abuse it by many voices in today's culture? Will you help us to be countercultural? That we would present something better, a better story, and that is your story. And delight in the good things that you've given us. And will you remind us of the forgiveness that you have given us that covers all of our sins and renew our purpose and our hope. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I forgot this last week. I'm not going to forget it again. (coughs) I will use hand sanitizer. Mandy, will you bring the hand sanitizer up? Um, It's fascinating. Jesus was critiqued over and over again. One of his biggest critiques was that he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. Fascinating, isn't it? That Jesus would choose those two groups to represent who he came to have fellowship with, 
to eat together in an ancient society and still in many cultures is the most intimate of things. You don't invite just anybody into your house. You don't go to just anybody's house. It, it communicates a level of association. And yet Jesus chose to communicate that his gospel, his forgiveness was for those who have committed sexual sins. That's a powerful message, isn't it? We need to hear that over and over again. He said to those who had been married seven times, sat with the woman at the well, and he said, go and sin no more. Saying, don't just think, I just give you a license to keep doing it. This is damaging. It's harmful for you as a person. But he equipped them, not by saying, go and get your life in order and then you can come to me. He equipped them by saying, come and know me and you will know a better way. That's a better story. That's the story that's communicated to us when we sit and take this Lord's Supper. For none of us can come here today and say we are without any sin. But all of us come to Jesus needing his forgiveness, needing to be assured that if we have believed and trusted in him, we are forgiven. Even if we have doubted this week or at times past, we are forgiven for that and renewed. Renewed by his faithfulness and the intimacy of his relationship with us. With that, the invitation is open to all who have believed what we said earlier, have confessed the Apostles' Creed. If there's a part of that that you don't understand, come and talk to me or some other pastor or teacher and understand the gospel before you take it. There's no need to put on false airs here. If you're not in a place of belief, search out the truth. Know this Jesus. Believe and be baptized. Become a member of the local church and then you will know and then receive this meal. It doesn't mean doesn't mean that your life is all in order when you get those things done. It means that you understand that the gospel says exactly the opposite. You can't get your life in order until you come to Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the gospel, for the gospel exposes us not in a shameful way, but in a healing way. We've been doing this in a safe, uh, healthy way. I'll use hand sanitizer and then I'll come and give you both the bread and the wine or the juice. This week we do have the juice in the outside ring and the wine in the inside rings. And uh, once you receive the elements, hold them until we can uh, eat and drink together. It's a sign of our unity in Christ. We're not individuals. We're called to be uh, a church together uh, with Christ, with one another. And then also, if you're watching from home and participating, uh, I, I've said this, it, if you'd like to participate from home, if you have bread and wine there, you're welcome to. It is not the ideal. The ideal is that the church is gathered together. And yet in this weird circumstance, it may be the best, the better thing than, than not receiving the, uh, the sacrament at all. With that, let's, uh, let me pray.
Jesus on the night when he was going to the cross, he took bread. And he broke it. And he explained to his disciples that this bread represents his body, is his body, which was to be broken and has been broken for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. The same way he took the wine and he poured it out and he took the cup and he explained this blood, this wine is represents, is the blood of a new covenant, Jesus' blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You testify, I believe. It is a powerful testimony. Even this place in this park that we're testifying to those around us, we believe. Jesus also prayed, and so we pray before we take this. Father, will you bless this food to us? For you have fed us with your word. Now may we feast body and your blood, not in a cannibalistic way, but in a very real spiritual way, that we would be nourished, receiving the sacrifice, participating in the sacrifice that you have offered for us for the forgiveness of sins. Amen.